The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFond. Welcome back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Joining me on this episode from the band Warrant, it is Robert Mason. The new album is Harder, Louder, Faster. And on the other side, we've got Mon One of my personal favorites from Canada, Honeymoon Suite. New album is Hands Up. It is absolutely uh, glorious. Before we get into that, of course, we have news from Bill Leverty of Higher Firehouse. Always, always a pleasure to hear from Bill. And uh, I just want to recount a quick experience. At the end of April, I got to see L.A. Guns, the reunited L.A. Guns with uh, Tracy Guns and uh, Michael Grant, who was in the end ever after before, and uh, Phil Lewis at the uh, Brass Monkey in Ottawa. And I must say, you know, I have seen L.A. Guns over the last 20 years countless amounts of times. I mean, just unbelievable, all kinds of lineups. I mean, I, I've seen all 87 members. Uh, well, I'm being facetious. There's only 86 members. But no. Um, and I have to say, this Tracy Guns, Phil Lewis, Michael Grant fronted version of the band is absolutely spectacular. I mean, I just, I just haven't seen them this good. And, and I don't mean that to be disparaging because they've been absolutely great in the past. But wow. I mean, just wow. Uh, Tracy and Michael play off of each other as if they were, you know, Brad Whitford and Joe Perry, for crying out loud. It, it is just absolutely, absolutely glorious. Um, also, please, while you're listening to this, uh, do yourself a favor, and or do me a favor, actually, and uh, check out some of the past episodes that we've had here on Rock Talk with uh, Andy Summers of The Police, Frank Marino of Mahogany Rush, Ian Pace of Deep Purple, Ricky Rocket of Poison, uh, great episodes, and I'd hate for you to miss out on those coming up. Uh, I've got Scott Gorham of Thin Lizzy, Mick Box of Uriah Heap, and uh, just a whole bunch of other great stuff coming up. So please keep tuning in. And uh, with that, I will give you the one, the only, from Firehouse, with your rock news, Bill Leverty. All right. Thanks, Mitch. And here's the news. Great White have teamed up with their original producer, Michael Wagoner, to deliver the new 10-song Full Circle album. It comes out June 2nd and brings the listeners back to the band's early 80s roots. Also on the Great White front, singer Terry Luce has released his third solo album. Gypsy Dreams is a cover album of classic and hard rock favorites with Latin and flamenco flavorings. Terry covers such tracks as Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin, Def Leppard's Love Bites, Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell, and more. The album is available now. Finally, a lot of people are wondering, how successful has the Guns N' Roses Reformation been? Well, according to Billboard's latest box scores, the band's continuing 2016-2017 tour, which welcomed Slash and Duff McKagan back to the fold, has grossed over $230 million so far. It is estimated that the tour will gross a half billion dollars by the time it wraps up. Expect new music from the band soon. And that's it from here. Thanks a lot, guys. Back to you, Mitch. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And, of course, a big thank you to Bill Leverty of Firehouse for our rock news. You can, of course, check out Bill at 
liberty.com and of course while you're checking stuff out please head over to twitter and check me out at mitch lafon m-i-t-c-h-l-a-f-o-n and on instagram at mitch underscore lafon and with that a a quick correction the warrant album is actually louder harder faster made a quick little mistake at the front of the episode but uh you know let us get right over to Robert Mason. I love Robert. I've known him for, for many, many years. I loved the Rockaholic album. I thought he was a great choice. In fact, I think in the present, not in the past, I think he is a great choice for Warrant. In fact, the perfect choice for Warrant. He brings such an energy and a verve to the whole kind of uh, thing that they do, which is kick-ass rock and roll. Uh, so there we go. Without further ado, let's get right into this. Uh, here is the one, the only... Robert Mason. We are speaking with Warrant singer Robert Mason. The new album is Louder, Harder, Faster. Comes out in uh, May, May 12th. May 12th on Frontier Records. And uh, I've had a chance to hear it. And let me tell you, it is absolutely phenomenal. Some of the best work from the band. Uh, so congratulations on that. Um, talk to me a little bit about putting this together. It, when you get into the studio and, and you're working on new songs... How much of the past are you thinking, okay, we need to have a cherry pie, we need to, or is it, no, let's just go do what we do and come up with the best sort of 10 or 12 songs? Mitch, it's it's a combination of both. And hear me out, obviously the band has a legacy of songs, and everybody who knows the band at all and knows what we're up to these days knows that, like you said, put the Rockaholic record out a few years ago. Uh, we're, I feel personally blessed in a lot of ways to be in this band and have that opportunity. Frontiers is great to us. And, you know, we sit in the songwriting process and I can, I can say selfishly, I, I don't really say we need to have a this or that from certain time period. Who is the same person today that they were in the late eighties or early nineties? You know, we get a little longer in the tooth. You learn more. You, you're hope, you know, I mean, I know I'm older. I might not be wiser, but I'm older. Um, and there's an indelible history that I embrace. I know songs need to appeal to, to Warrant fans, but at the same time, we will just say, come on, we're just going to throw a bunch of ideas up, see who likes what, finish the ones we love, and put them out when we're ready. I did, however, want to sort of bridge the gap. And, that, you know, come on, this is up for debate and up to the listener's ear, but I... I love certain aspects of the Cherry Pie record, and I love the Dog Eat Dog record. Particularly, they switched producers. They had done two records with Bo Hill. Uh, Dog Eat Dog was done with uh, Michael Wagner, and I love Michael Wagner. So the great things he did on that record, I think, are guitar tones. Uh, Joey Allen playing those solos plays his ass off on that record. He really does. And he shines, the band shines. The songs are really cool, and I think largely unappreciated in the overall spectrum because the garden variety fan will think, you know, okay, heaven down boys, you know, sometimes she cries cherry, you know, the songs like that off the first two records. But personally being in a lynch mob and being direct support for warrant in arenas in 92, 93, I got to hear all those doggy dog songs the first times that, you know, they got played live out. So I wanted our record the louder, harder record to just kind of fall between those two if I could. And it's, you know, it's a lofty goal and it's not like I'm making any claims, but in theory, in the writing process, I thought, okay, cool. Let's do that. Plus I think my love of all like the vintage seventies 
kind of tones and old instruments and things like that came together really well. And it, uh, the record almost feels to me when I listen to it, like something that would have come out 78, 79. And, you know, just because it's got that sort of tone and that's, that's where I live, uh, historically, you know, in my influences. So once again, just my opinion, but is that a long enough answer? No, no, (laughs) it's a great answer. Um, uh, talk to me a little bit about filling Janie Lane's shoes, though. And, and maybe that's not the right term, but um, he was loved by, by fans, and he was loved for his writing style. He was loved for his uh, singing. He was just loved you know, by the fans. Um, coming in now and having this now be your second album, are you finding that fans are embracing you more and more? You get some of both. You know, I'm, I don't begrudge anybody their want to hold on to, uh, because I do. Like I told you, I was the guy who would play our set, go grab a shower, go to catering, and run up and stand on usually Monitor World, so stage left, Joey's side, and watch Warren. And Janie and I were friends. Uh, we met, I guess, shortly before or when I was in pre-production for the Lynch Mob Records, so 91 in L.A., hung out, became you know each other's drinking bitch for a little while. Uh, in, in a good way, you know, not too much, just enough. Right. And uh, we were friends, and that was a large component that led to us uh, supporting Warrant out there, you know, on our two records. So I feel like I'm in the best place. It was really organic, the fit back in 08. Uh, when, you know, when Jeannie's health and, and performances have deteriorated, and let's be honest with each other, I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I'm not throwing them under the bus, but in fact, when they got all five original guys back together and, and had the press announcements and everything, I sent Lane voicemails and text messages, both encouraging and congratulating him, but, and, and I'll be dead honest with you, sadly, did not hear anything back. He was in a kind of dark place. He'd been in and out of rehab a bunch of times, all best intentions to put that band together the way it was and, and book a tour, but I ran into them at Oklahoma. And I, I know I've told the story before, but, you know, I had, I had seen a couple of things that had happened and everybody looks on YouTube, but, you know, we're not everybody, but I did. And when I saw Joey, he was absolutely distraught. And when I saw the band the next day at Soundcheck before my set, I walked up and just walked on stage and got that instant, you know, Dixon. I see Dixon, he's like, dude, you know, and a big hug. And then everybody explained to me what they were going through. And they were just, they felt really badly that they wanted to put on a great show. And their, you know, their centerpiece. I mean, you're the, you know, my job is I'm the shiny hood ornament on the front of the car. And if all five elements of the band aren't working up to snuff, the show falls short, audiences notice, and the whole thing, you know, the wheels fall off. So as badly as I felt for Janie, you know, those guys, I think that's where it, the little spark started. And they were like, oh man, I, you know, Joey jokingly with a couple of beers in him Friday night before the show sees me and says, oh, my God, dude, I don't know where my singer is. They told me he's in rehab. I think he's flying in. How many of our songs do you know? And I hadn't talked to Joey in a few years. And, you know, my joke was, I think I know, too. How many times do you want me to sing them? That's great. And, you know, Lane flew in. He was honestly fresh out of rehab. And I'll be, you know, Mitch, you and I know each other. I'm not going to pull punches. You know, I'm in New York. I'm in New York, born and raised. And I, I, I don't know what that means other than I'm really upfront. 
And if there's something wrong, I'll tell you. If there's something great, I'll tell you. If you have a gripe, you tell me. We'll work it out. But Lane showed up fresh out of rehab and, as one does, completely clean and full of whatever they put you on mentally and, and medically to get out of the situation you're in. And he did a pretty damn good show there, but it really fell off quickly afterwards again. And he just couldn't stay healthy and clean. And it was obvious to the band. And within a month uh, or so, a little more than a month, about Labor Day, Joey Allen called me and said, oh, man, this is a super hard phone call, but we want you to fly out and play a bunch of songs with us, and can you do this? And I said, sure. Now, fans initially, they're, in fact, they're still, you know, dude, they, the, the hater troll speak on, you know, whatever. Sorry, but I'm going to say blather mouth, and I don't disparage the site. Right. But, you know, everybody's got an opinion nowadays. Everybody with a keyboard and a basement can voice it for the whole world. And, you know, that's their right, and I get it. Some of the really vitriolic, just lemming, inane speak to me, the band should quit. You know, like, really? You got four out of five people in a company and a crew and everybody in a legacy of songs, and you have a singer who was friends with your singer who can't do it anymore and then subsequently passes away, and you don't want to at least entertain the thought of coming out and, you know, having the band play those songs. I'm not being a cocky prick, but look, you know, I'm capable of doing it. I love doing it. I'm the happiest when I'm behind a mic and I'm in a band with four guys that I really like. And we're playing these songs that I do my damnedest to do a faithful tribute to every night, my friend who's no longer with us. And that's about all I want to say about that. If we carry on and do new songs, if you dig those two, awesome. You know, if you want to tell me, you think I should, you know, slide into an embankment and uh, taste my own blood while gasoline burns me to death. Well, fuck off. Tell that too. I don't care. Tell blabbermouth. Right. Yeah. No fan. I, I, I honestly, I will right here out in the open and open invite to any fan that wants to come and tell me that to my face. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I've got to say, I've, I've had two, um, well, I don't know. I don't want to say run-ins or encounters, but I've had two moments with, with warrant at, at a festival called Heavy Montreal. First one was in 2008, and the band was doing a signing at the tent, uh, you know, sort of a meet-and-greet thing, and I was responsible for walking Janie out. And by the time that we located him, or I located him and got him to the tent, the signing was done, and we had the, the rest of the band had left, and um, it, it was sort of a, a strange moment. And then the second time at Heavy Montreal, I guess it was 2014, it was with you, Correct. And the entire band uh, bolted after the set to get back to, I guess, the hotel or, or to airplane or whatever you had to do. <laughs> but you stayed around. And, and we sort of looked and said, well, why, why are you here? And you said, well, you know what? I want to thank uh, the promoter for having us out. And out of all the times I've been at Heavy Montreal, you're the only guy who wanted to shake the promoter's hand and stayed there until we were able to find him. And so, uh, to me, that that's just fantastic. And then, of course, there is that story of how we got out uh, of yes, of awesome story. <laughs> yeah. Right, here's the thing, Mitch. I don't I don't hate on anybody's automobile, but the the car I'm sitting in right now in my garage, so I can get a little quiet time here. And because it's it's not such a hot day in Arizona, I'm sitting in the passenger seat, which I never do. I've been in the passenger seat once in this car. And it was because Bob Bondurant was driving it. 
and it's a it's my 65 Shelby Cobra. Nice. So, and I'm not not to brag, but I wish that I'd had that car to take around the lap. I'd have probably even let you drive the damn thing because we got to get out of the heavy Montreal event on the racetrack. That's where they, the cones directed us. So we're, right. And I think we made a mistake. Did we drive around the whole damn thing once? Well, th- well here's the thing. It is the, <laughs> it is the official Formula One racetrack that is connected to the site. So, I mean, this is where you've had uh, all the, the, the big racers. And, no, the, the, we didn't. We drove around once, but it's sort of they forced us to drive around once. So, yeah, um, it was quite interesting <laughs> driving around the Formula One racetrack in a, uh, in a, whatever it was, Volkswagen or whatever, <laughs> to get you out. But, um, let, let's yeah, get... I, well, as for that, I don't mean to cut you off, but, but as for the, the, you know, the subject matter before, I was having a great day. It was a beautiful day in Montreal. It was a cool event. It was my first time there. And running into, you know, like Jericho, running into Corey Taylor, and just being able to reconnect with a bunch of guys that I knew, either, and plus, dude, at that gig, catering was awesome. I, sh- I think everybody should have thanked them just for the catering. And yeah. I was thankful to be there because I knew the story that, you know, there was, I don't know, there was some sort of bad taste in the mouth of the, of the powers that be because of that warrant show. I think it took a few years and I had been in the band, like you said, for, for a bunch of years. And when that event came up, just they turned a kind of a, honestly a blind eye to our band until they realized, okay, you know, I think our agency and somebody else and a few fans or somebody was large in part responsible for kind of turning them around and saying, okay, we'll give this band a chance. So honestly, a lot was at stake for us. And I wanted to go out there and I have, I'll make no mistake, you know, no, no, uh, no false modesty here. I'm hell bent when I go out on stage to do the best job possible. But I think we had a little more to prove that night or afternoon is the case. Maybe I think it was late afternoon, early evening when we went on. So, uh, you know, and after that, I was thankful you know, it was a cool environment, great atmosphere. And I honestly wanted to say thanks for having us. Yeah, it, it really is one of the, uh, the greatest festivals. Um, they, they, they do such a great job. This year, they're, they're taking it off, though, because there's other stuff, but it'll be back in 2018. Um, but speaking about the band, because what I really want to get to here is that was my first time seeing you with the band live, and I just thought you delivered an incredible performance. And, and you know, I've had a chance well, to check you. out other shows and, and YouTube and this and that, and it seems as though the band musically, and now I'm talking about, you know, uh, Stephen and, and Eric and, and Jerry, Musically, they're delivering better than they ever have, and I don't mean to disparage the '80s and '90s, but they just seem more focused, have a, a greater urgency, a greater purpose. Is that something that you're noticing from them as well? And is that something that you think at some point is worth capturing on CD or DVD, or or just to, to get that out there and have your voices on the classic songs and and let fans hear the new songs, but in a live context yeah you know haters be damned i'd love to do that we've been approached by frontiers entertaining that possibility uh they talked about doing a show overseas and we kind of came back at them with well why don't we do it really right and spend the whole budget on the damn thing and do it in the states so we don't have to spend any money on airfare you know and and just get it great out here i'd love to do that man um anywhere anytime I mean, any live show is great 
for me, but to put something out there, uh, I, I suppose, I mean, I don't want to be too presumptuous to think that fans would want that. Uh, some might, I mean, some, those records still stand to me. And honestly, I got home and, uh, I think VH1 on TV was doing the Headbangers Ball 30th anniversary. And I turn on my TV when I get home, fly, you know, flew home into Phoenix. I get back to my house from the airport, turn on the TV, fire up the laptop, and I start doing business and, you know, catching up, get a cup of coffee, and Down Boys comes on. And I'm like, really? I just left all these guys in Tacoma like a few hours ago. So it was kind of funny to watch that and listen to it again, um, which I don't often do, but. Like I said earlier, I'll do my best me interpretation of those songs and with faithful and, and loving tribute to what, you know, to the legacy of the band. And those guys really do come out to, you know, deliver the best performance we're capable of every night. They really do. Every one of us. Yeah. So, yep. man, maybe. I don't know. Take uh, a poll. I'll uh, do it. I think I think it would be worth uh, capturing. Now, uh, we, we've talked about doing the, the justice to these old songs, but let's talk about some songs that you were involved with and that you can sort of stand up and be proud of here. Um, Diamonds and Debris by the band Cry of Love. Yes. Your, your friend and mine, Mitch Joel, claims it's one of the best albums of the 90s and that your singing is phenomenal on the album, which, which I agree with. Uh, talk to me about that band... And coming into that situation and having a chance to sort of put your stamp on songs. I mean, because I've, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but Lynch Mob, I always assumed was George's project and he had sort of the bigger piece of the pie. And, and of course, Warrant is, uh, you know, a band, you know, when you tried out for Rat, et cetera, et cetera. What was it like for, for, for Cry of Love and getting into that situation? Well, Originally, uh, we were all friends through our A&R connections in New York City. Uh, Cry of Love was signed to Columbia by uh, Donnie Einer and a guy named uh, Josh Sarban. So we all knew each other. Uh, and, you know, they. I flew down to North Carolina before, I guess, wow, 94? 94, maybe late 94, early 95. And met with them, and they were really having a struggle with whether the, the guy they were having who was having problems, whether or not he was going to be their singer anymore. And just on a whim, I I flew down, uh, flew out to Raleigh, and spent a week with them. Sat around, you know, played some songs, played a bunch of stuff that we all loved, wrote a little bit. And they were really on the fence. And they even said so, you know, oddly. And I had a talk. It's like, man, it, we just don't know what to do right now. We're really confused. The record company's giving us a lot of pressure. And then I got the Ozzy gig. Like within a few months, and I was gone for the better part of a year. And the cry I left things kind of, for them, kind of died on the vine. And Oddly was continuing to write songs. He's a great songwriter, an amazing guitar player. All those guys still love those three guys to death. They are, you know, consummate musicians and southern gentlemen. But uh, flash fast forward rather to, uh, oh, about June or July of 96, <clears throat> I was in Detroit in a hotel, and Oddly Freed calls me and says, like, hey, man, Donnie called me. He wants to make this record. You're our guy. I got a bunch of material. Can I start sending you songs? And can you quit Ozzy and go make, join Cry of Love and make a record with us? And, you know, I mean, that's how it happened in my brain. 
and I wanted to be a front man again. I've been out with Oz for about a year, you know, man behind the curtain kind of thing, not really talking about it to anybody. And uh, it was one of those, you know, it was like, like a secret weapon kind of thing. And I love those people dearly, and I was paid well, and got to see the world and elsewhere, like they say in Spinal Tap. And I went to Sharon and Oz and said, I want to be a front man again, and I've got this opportunity. It's on the same label. I asked Sharon to call Donnie Einer and work out all the business stuff, and we kind of sat there in the same room and made a pact to keep, to get the Aussie train through as much of the summer as possible. And I did, uh, my last show was Donnington. Uh, it was uh, August of 96. And uh, they released me and, you know, wished me well, and I got home for a week and flew right back out to Raleigh and made that Cry Love record. So... I don't know. Did I answer the question, or did I just ramble? I think it. I think we we answered it. But I I do yeah. want I do want to pick up on the Aussie thing because there are some unwritten. I mean, I'm, I'm, I will say I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm, on the cry of love front, I love that when fans and musicians alike <clears throat> kind of recognize that it was a weird time for music. The band kind of got lost in the sauce. Did Allman Brothers openers and Cheap Trick openers and a bunch of things and. Uh, we just kind of decided ourselves to just disband it. And, you know, we all remained friends and went four separate ways, but, uh, I'm fiercely proud of that record. Uh, it tapped into a lot of my earlier influences that nobody ever got to hear. Now you say lynch mob and you say the warrant thing. I was a writer and a contributing writer on both of those. George's big on music, but lyrics and melodies, you know, largely are mine. And then Mick and Ant on the Lynch Mob record and Keith Olsen on the Warren record, same kind of thing. I mean, I, you know, rockaholic record, I wrote a lot of that stuff. And I think four, five songs pretty much intact from my demos arrangement, everything got on that record with a little tweak here and there. And everybody plays their parts and embellishes and makes it their own kind of the same thing with this record. Although Dixon and I wrote a ton for the louder, harder, faster record together. I think I only did a couple of songs that ended up, you know, like kind of mine, basically. But right. uh, but okay, I'm sorry, the Aussie thing. No, no, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to remember what song you did on louder, harder, faster. The the, the piano song. Um, uh, you and my life. You and my life. Um, yeah, because we were talking about that uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, just just explain to the fans that are listening what exactly happened there, because you. It is a great, great song, and oh man, thank you. Yeah, it really is. It, it, it really just, um, and you know, I excuse that I that I don't remember all the names. I just I hear all these music all the time. But um, talk to me about the piano on that, and and how that came about, and and putting that song together. Because I, I, if I remember correctly from our conversation a couple of weeks ago, you were very, very proud of of how that came out and how you put that together and and musically. I mean, this sounds really gratuitous and, and yes. selfish, but yeah. But that's how I set it up, <laughs> right? <laughs> you yeah. kind of did. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, so let's say, let's, oh, let's have an Aussie tie-in. So on the Aussie tour, I decided, right, I had a house in Phoenix, you know, obviously I'm, I'm gone a lot. I came home on a, on a week break. I found a vintage piano at a piano broker in Arizona, and I bought a 1926 Chickering Grand Piano. So basically, thank you, Aussie for allowing me to buy a beautiful vintage piano. Had it redone. I, it's still in my house. It's two houses later. It's in this, it's in this house now. Uh, and 
I would sit down every morning writing for this record, and I had a bunch of piano stuff. I've got a backlog of material, and I go out to Nashville and write with a bunch of Nashville writers I have over the past three, four years just to get better as a songwriter, and you never know what's going to happen. So Dixon's always bugging me throughout the past few years. Come on, Mace, you got like, you have all these piano songs. Put a piano, let's do a piano song on a record. And I thought, well, we're never going to be able to do it live or do it on what? You know, I'm not Elton John. Is a piano going to fall from the sky and, you know, do this? So I made the joke about it, but the you and my life idea was just a piano idea on a day off, you know, like today, like getting home from the road. I'm on a Monday, first pot of coffee. I sit down with piano or guitar and I try to make a song come out. I do that every day of my life when I'm home. That, those, that, piano, that little, like, you know, really simple, you know, C descending chord progression comes out of my head and onto the piano, recorded it on my iPhone. And I sent it to a real good friend of mine, Joe West, who's a songwriter producer in Nashville. He's done some huge things. Like the fact that the guy even wants me to fly out and write with him is just amazing to me. I sent it to him, and thankfully with iPhones, you got that little audio recorder. And I just sang a, a melody with no lyrics. I sent it to him. I fired off in a text. I'm like, Joe, is this crap? And, you know, time change. He's in his midday. So within a few minutes, he's like, no, this is awesome. When can you get out to Nashville? I already have ideas. So... We'll move forward to maybe a month later. I work a writing trip into my into my deal, and I go hang out with the with him and sit and play it on his piano in his barn. And within a half an hour, that song is done. I mean, essentially, all the parts are there. He and I just he had some idea. I think he had the first the first line, the whole uh, "I love to watch you in the morning in the mirror" line uh, of the first verse. And we just took it, and as, as we've done before, he and I just go back and forth and, uh, and put a song together. So I wanted to keep it super simple, maybe get it into, you know, I, the, the blueprint I had was, as it is pretty much, piano and guitar. I did a demo of it that's almost dead on verbatim what you hear on the record, but just piano and vocal. And arrangement-wise, sent that to Pilsen, sent it to the band, and everybody said, this is the one. We're doing it. Throw a solo on that sucker. So I did it in my home studio and just put a, like the simplest little guitar thing on it that's not what's on the record um, now, just a placeholder guitar solo. And as we did the record, Jeff and I thought, well, cool, what if we make it, you know, whole band comes in. Yeah, you know, like, I'm, this is lofty, but like, like maybe I'm amazed or like, you know, certain songs that start off really solo guitar and or solo piano and vocal and then expand. Dixon played some killer fretless bass on it. Um, the piano is not my chick. It's, uh, it's uh, Jeff Pilsen. He had just bought a vintage Steinway and put it in his living room. And I'm like, we're getting some chords out here. We're getting some microphones in this box, and we're playing your piano. So it turned out okay. I mean, let's see. Uh, Joey and I played acoustics on it. Eric played a little bit. Uh, I had had that solo in my head for about I think the whole recording process I would go back to a house I was living in in Manhattan Beach while we were recording and then driving up to Jeff Pilsen's so I was hanging out at the beach and I got to sit and play guitar every night and kind of work that solo out over the course of you know bits and pieces here and there over a couple of days brought it in Jeff's got a really really cool vintage ES335 Gibson that I just fell in love with first time I saw it, picked it up. 
And while we were recording, I'd always noodle on that guitar in the studio in the control room and like pitch ideas, you know, like, hey, what if, you know, what if you do this? What if you do that? And I'm not a real guitar player, but, you know, I'm like, I'm a singer who plays a little. So in the studio that day, uh, Joey and I and Jeff were sitting and Joey was doing some guitar tracks and the piano was already laid. I was doing vocals in there and the little major Tom acoustic part that comes in and we were putting finishing touches and I just said, Jeff, may I plug, you know, plug into one of these amps? He's like, sure. And got a channel open and I played a dummy, so just a scratch solo, no pick on that ES-335. And Jeff's like, okay, what if that's cool? You want to take another pass? I'm like, well, it's just an idea. And Joey looks at me, he's like, I'm not going to play it like that. Why don't you play it? So, you know, like, I'm no kidding. On one knee with that guitar on my knee, no strap, no pick. That's the second take, I think, of that solo, and it's on the record. So, personally, I feel great about that. Yeah, and you should. It, 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 I don't want to say I mean, I'm no, I'm, no, I'm no Jeff Beck or Brian May, for God's sake, but that's where I was going with, in my head with that. So, it's got all the, like, the little bendy notes and, you know, just finger plucked out on that awesome vintage guitar, so... Yeah, and there, it, there it goes. And that that song just has an honesty to it, which, which really comes through. And I, and just hearing the recording process of it, it shows why it's an honesty because it's not overthought and over this and overbeaten and, and pro tooled. And it's here's you know, um, let me get on to this Aussie thing here because I I know that you 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 have a a busy day and the Aussie thing could take a while. But well, man, uh, I'm not, I'm willing to spend as much time as you want. Honestly, I feel great. So all right. So I believe, well, I'm not I believe, but this was the Retirement Sucks tour of 95, correct? Correct. 95, 96, uh, the record was Osmosis. Yes. So, uh, so many questions, but, but let, let's set up the premise, because I know the story, but fans uh, that are listening now may or may not, but at that time, you were sort of backstage in a little sort of, what was it? Four by four or six by six booth with a couple of wedges, a couple of speakers for you know, uh, and you were adding some background vocals to to the Aussie set. So so tr- try to situate us and what what were you doing for Aussie at that time? Well, Sharon called me and said he really wants you to come out. I guess Sharon had called around a few recording studios and asked if you know there was a guy capable of doing background vocals, and my name had been thrown around anyway. Uh, we'd worked with some of the same producers. So I think she made two, three phone calls and my name came up. Thankfully, I haven't, you know, haven't spent my life burning bridges with record producers. So the third or fourth phone call was to my home. And she said, look, he really wants you to come out. And we'd worked together. Like I said, you know, he knew of some of the stuff I'd done, I supposedly. And, uh, Zach and I are, you know, spent a little time back in, back in the day, home, home in Jersey and New York. So we knew each other. And uh, she said, look, you know, he wants some a real human being to do background vocals, not a sampler or anything. And you have to think back, this is 95. So sampling was triggered by John Sinclair keyboard or, and or they had to be, you know, tractor or, you know, whatever. And it felt artificial to him. And, you know, if you know anything about Oz, you know, the first thing is, oh, fuck all this shit, you know, just give me a person that I can sing with. So that was the impetus behind Sharon calling me, me flying out to Europe. And uh, my quote-unquote, whatever you want, I mean, I'd already been hired pretty much. I flew out and did my first sound check in Stockholm or Copenhagen or whatever of that show day. And, and Oz, looks, Oz looks over at me, and I'm, you're right. I mean, they built me an aluminum frame and then scrim, so, you know, like black, really, really heavy black cloth. They built me a dismantleable 
vocal booth, basically. Came in and said, okay, what kind of wedges do you like? And what do you want to sing through? I'm like, yeah, whatever. Give me a 58 and a wire or whatever you're using. Whatever the sound man thinks will sound best in a couple of ways, or a wedge, I think, or whatever. We're fine. Uh, did a couple of songs, and I was on stage right, if you're watching those shows, behind the subs. So I, was, I could see him. He could see me. We had line of sight. And listen to those Aussie records. That's Oz doing all those background vocals, and it's multi-tracked and you know, layered to make a record sound great. But it's him, and he's quite a good singer. He sang great on those records and I love all that material so who would say no to that so uh, I think we did a couple of songs maybe I don't know and we were doing uh, oh my gosh See You on the Other Side and Perry Mason I think was the single at that time and uh, we did a couple of songs and sound check he looks at me and thumbs up he goes okay you're in and then walks off <laughs> and I didn't come home for a year pretty much what, so, what, what an incredible doing, story doing all, you know, doing all like the the third and fifth harmonies on those and doubling courses every once in a while. Cause you know, I'm bored. I mean, I would sing the whole damn night and just let them take whatever they wanted. Sound man would have a, a couple of tracks of me or a track of me or whatever. And you know, he had a live person to sing harmony with and our love for Bowie and the Beatles. And I remember when they, there was an Annie Lennox record that Ozzy was listening to like the whole time, every time I would see him in his room, you know, he had a little band room off the side of ours to afford him some privacy. And then in hotels, I'd walk by hotels and we'd be on the same floor and I'd, his doors would be wide open <laughs> to his room and him on a life cycle, you know, or boxing against the wall. <laughs> Fair box. He's like, Hey Rob, fancy cup of tea. Come on in. You know, we'd sit and watch the history channel or whatever and talk about music. It was the coolest thing. But it was because of the press had a field day back, you know, obviously with him. This is, this is pre the Osbournes TV show and all that stuff. It was, they wanted just the least amount of, you know, shit to fly around as possible. So I was kept under the radar, which I was cool with. You know, I don't have to do press. Uh, and I got to do, you know, those 16 or 18, whatever, Ozzy and Black Sabbath songs, four or five nights a week in arenas around the world for about a year. Uh, you know, nice work if you can get it. But yeah. it became the legend of the quote-unquote tent guy, I think. And a really funny story. Years later, on the Cry Love Tour, we were playing the, uh, doing a support cheap trick, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, it had to be cheap trick. And this is where Robert's uh, bad run his phone cut out, but fear not, I called him back and we got the story. So uh, let us continue with the one, the only, Robert Mason. Go well, ahead. so uh, let's see. The Aussie thing is, is, is kind of funny. I was on tour with Cry Love right. in the uh, summer of 97. And uh, one of the last shows with uh, opening for Cheap Trick, sitting in the, uh, the bar at the Hyatt, the legendary Hyatt on Sunset right across the street. And uh, having a little celebrating after the, uh, after the show. And I'm sitting in the Hyatt bar with Rick Nielsen and a couple of the other cheap trick guys and some crew, and we're just having, you know, having a drink or whatever. And uh, Twiggy from Manson's band at the time was there. That's awesome. And, you know, just sitting around chatting. They had just filmed a video for some single, and I don't recall which one it was, but uh, he's telling stories. And I guess Rick Nielsen was asking in particular about how people just misunderstood Manson and, you know, you have religious zealots outside and bomb threats and every other thing and how, you know, how that 
how kind of weird that is and rough. And, and Twiggy's telling him a little bit about it. So I think Rick, or, I think Rick come, looks at me and says, well, Robert, you know, you know what that's all about. And Twiggy doesn't know me. And, you know, I, I said, well, yeah, a little bit, because they would do that on the Aussie tour. You'd have people out there with the Jesus is a winner, Aussie is a loser signs, and you know, all that kind of stuff, just misunderstanding what the whole thing's about. And, uh, and Twiggy's looking at you like, who, who this, who's this guy on well, yeah, Aussie honestly, tour? <laughs> Yeah, right, right. And, and and not not to his discredit, but he didn't know me. And he looks at me kind of like, "Why the fuck are you even here? Who are you again?" <laughs> right. You know, and either Rick or Tom says, "Oh, you know, this is." He, basically, they told the story about what I did for Oz before being in Cry of Love. Twinkies draws on the floor, and it was the first time I ever heard. He looks at me dead in the eyes, like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, wait, hold on, you're the tent guy." I'm like, "What do you mean tent guy?" And then he proceeds to tell me, "It's like, oh no, everybody talks about this." You know, there was a guy, and we never knew if it was true because, you know, we kept it really quiet in the press because the press had a field day with Oz, and we didn't want people to say, he can't sing anymore, and he's got somebody, you know, it's the Wizard of Oz, and pay, pay no attention to the guy on stage, there's a real guy back there singing. It wasn't like that. So, you know, we all laughed over that, but that was the first time I'd heard the tent guy phrase, that there was apparently this, you know, <laughs> urban legend in the, <laughs> in the underground music industry about this guy lurking backstage at Aussie shows with a microphone singing. I think that's a perfect, uh, by the way, title for, for, your, uh, for a solo album, should you ever do one. It should be Robert Mason, The Tent Guy. Right? I mean, <laughs> or no, auto, yeah, autobiography. <laughs> the autobiography. See, you know, I, I used to say I'm saving. When, you know, inevitably, somebody, when they're doing one of those crap interviews where they've only read the first page of Wikipedia and they ask you things that, that you, they should already know, one of those silly questions, what's the craziest thing that ever happened on the road? And I, I, you just, I've distilled it down to five words, saving it for the book. <laughs> That's the greatest just thing. To get off, just to get off the topic and let them like, you know, here, ask me a smart question. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know but the, the thing is with you is that there, there are so many interesting questions because, listen, and I and I and I don't mean to use the word in a dis, in a disparaging way, but you are a journeyman in the sense that you you've done Lynch Mob, you've done Warrant, you you tried out for Rat, you did this Aussie thing. Um, yeah, you, you're, you're, I, I get. Hey, I yeah. like honestly, I've described myself that way. Right. And journeyman musician and songwriter or whatever else, you know, like that's what what gig could I imagine better than for you know for me than that? I mean, probably. I don't know, Powerball winner? Right, right. But it, Other it, than that, I, I got a pretty good gig. It, it is a testament, though, to the talent that, that you are able to keep working. And, and the one that I've mm, always... Thank you. Uh, the one I've always asked about and that I've always found interesting is that you did do work for, for Disney. And, and we have spoken about this before, but certainly not in, in this context. Um, you know, talk to me just about being a working musician and having to do all these sort of different gigs and 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 let's talk about that disney one real quick what 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 did you do for them and you know how is important is, is it to just sort of keep working sort of to keep sane and to keep food on the table right uh, well it's it's that constant art versus commerce and i like capitalism and <laughs> earning a living doing what i love and not having to, I don't know, I'm not, and here I am, not, I'm not being disparaging to any other profession. Yeah, like but, not but having this, to be a rock journalist or something. Or, or, or I don't know, or <laughs> hang drywall, or 
be a, you know, fly an airplane or be a plumber or whatever else, you know, and, and what, what's funny is I was an English major in school and my future was either law school after that, or I was going to be a journalist. So you know, I always wrote, but I always had music in the background. It's what I really love to do. Dumb luck and circumstance and maybe perseverance and, and okay, some hard work and, and cultivating some ability that I have, I was able to always kind of figure out a way to work and do this for a living. And everybody has their own path, but I've, you know, I did the cover thing when I was younger. I, I've, I've been in a bunch of bands and, uh, the, you know, the rat thing, like you said, kind of was not really right path for me, but I was friendly with the guys. And it was one of those things where Steven had split. I think <laughs> they were arguing, aren't they always, I mean, just look at Facebook. Aren't they always arguing? Um, <laughs> right. And I guess George had introduced me to DMAR right when I was first in Lynch Mob. So Warren and I were friendly. You know, Bobby, Warren and Bob kind of came at me kind of hot and said, hey, man, him, uh, Robbie Crane was in the band at the time and said, you know, we need you. Can you do this? And I was otherwise writing and trying to get a, a project going. So I thought, OK, I'll go hang out a few times and, you know, go out to L.A. and get in a rehearsal room and see if it even does anything. But all the while, I'm thinking, I'm not the right guy for this. I'm really not. And, you know, Steven should be the voice of Rat. If you want to make, I, I can make my voice sound like that a little bit, but not really. I think I just sound like me. You know, fitting into a mold, I'm not really a chameleon or impersonator. I just sing the way I sing. And if you're singing those melodies, I can put grit in my voice or I can clean it up. And I suppose they just saw that as, okay, we'll just go out there and, you know, Steven doesn't want to do these gigs. You can do these gigs. And they wanted to, wanted me to be a member of RAT. And I jammed with them a few times. As much as it was fun, I, I called Warren and Bob and said, man, I'm not your guy. And, you know, <laughs> they mean, I'll be honest, those guys didn't talk to me for a couple of years. They were pissed. And we're fine now. Yeah, which is, which but, is strange that they'd be pissed at that, but, you know. Well, but they wanted to continue, and they saw merit in it. And it was fun to play those songs and to hang out. You know, those guys are great, and they're great musicians, and it's fun being a band with them, but, or, you know, play on stage with them, but I knew I just wasn't right for that. And even though I didn't have a solid gig at the time, I thought, it's not really, I'm not right for this. And I think down the road, Stephen will come back and all that. Uh, and it's funny, later on at M3, just a few years ago, Stephen Piercy and I, I, I bumped into him, uh, I bumped into him a few times, but we never really talked. I think a couple of times he thought I was in there trying to steal his gig. So, who knows what the rat guys told him about that story, but we had never cleared the air about that. I ran into him in the lobby of the Sheraton checking in to go play M3 a couple of years ago. And I, and I, you know, I walk in, I'm like, all right, I'm fixing this right now. <laughs> I walked up to him, say, hey, Steven, how you doing? Robert Mason, we've never done this. I put my hand out. He looks at me, he goes, yeah, yeah, whatever. I sing my song, you sing my songs. Either way, I get paid. You know, kind of like offhand, like, hey, fuck you, buddy. And I said, hold on a minute, dude. I stopped it in the lobby. He looks at me. He's like, did you ever hear the story about what really happened? Like, I told your band no. And I don't, you know, we're not bros or anything at this point. But I was like, dude, you're the voice of that band. I told them that. Uh, I'm hoping we're still all friends. But, you know, that I wasn't right for that. Did nobody ever tell you that's what I did? Did you think I was just, like, trying to scam your gig while you were, you know, arguing with your band? He, goes, he looks at me. He goes, oh, oh, all right. You want to go have a drink? I'm like, yeah. So we walked down to the bar outside the Sheraton, sat up a couple of glasses of wine, and now we're, you know, now we're tight. Yeah, I see. Kind of weird. 
Yeah, Steve, but Steve, Steven's a great guy. I've, I've, I've. He is. Yeah, I, I love Stephen. Um, and we'll start wrapping this up here. But have hmm. you ever been? And again, I'm trying to choose my words judiciously. But have you ever been disappointed, or, or that you didn't have your own project, your own vehicle, your own solo career, your own band? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I do. I know what you're saying. Uh, is there any regret there that there, there wasn't the Robert Mason project? God, even that sound, I don't know. Maybe I'm that kind of guy where I didn't want a band named after me. And I've right. had projects that have gotten close. Before Lynch Mob, I had a record deal uh, on Epic Sony in New York and uh, signed by the president of A&R. And a guy had just like resurrected the careers of Heart and Cheap Trick. And his big band was Living Color at the time. And... Uh, you know, I've been in projects like that. We recorded a whole bunch of demos, and the record was going to get made. And at the last minute, uh, Don, the president of A&R, left the company and got shelved. So that was my first kind of foray into the record industry uh, on that level. And then within a few months, I was kicking around, and I got a Lynch Mob audition, and there you go. So, I mean, I'm not being cocky when I say get into a band and, and you make it your band anyway. And those songs are mine in part. And doing the, the Warrant thing was just... It's like I said earlier, I'm with guys I like playing songs that are, I think are great. And, uh, we can go out and, um, and once again, art and commerce, you know, hand in hand, I get to do that and, uh, you know, make a little dough, keep gas in the car, keep gas in the keep car, the mortgage yeah. paid. No, um, I'm always, I'm always writing. I have done, like you said, that Disney thing was, I was the voice of an actor who didn't sing, but had to play a singer. Yes, and and the reason I bring that up so, is is, and I've told you this before. My kids, when they were running. younger, <laughs> used to watch that show all the time. What was the name of that show? Um, it was called It was called I'm in the Band, and the premise was there was like a kid in high school, right? Who who's this you know prodigal guitar player who gets hired by this aging rock band, so to speak, to uh, to go and be their you know new guitar player and tour around, and you know comedy ensues. XM. Disney comedy ensues, you know, him and his mom, and they're living in his house, and they're living in a van, and, you know, it, it was a funny show. Yeah, it was. And, a couple and, of seasons of that. And, and the only reason, and, and I've told you this uh, probably a hundred times, but my, my kids, when they were younger, would watch that all the time and say, oh, it's our favorite show, we love it, yay, yay, yay. And I would always say to them, yeah, but I know who's actually singing the song, so... <laughs> And they'd go, no, you don't. And I go, yeah, I do. Uh, and <laughs> it was my way, I guess. Uh, right, right, try, daddy trying to be cool, I guess. But, right, uh, I'm a cool dad. Check that out. Look at the yeah. credits at the end. Yeah, it's like, look at the credits at the end, and I'll be texting him later. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, yeah, no. But, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, sure. I, I don't go look it back and go, whoa. I'm not one of those guys who's bitter. I mean, I'm, I've been able to work, and... Yeah, and I guess that's... Live, live, or die, live or die by my own sword. I've, I've always thought you're only as good or bad as the last note you sang, and that's kind of the way it's been. Um, I, ha I am thankful. You know, I think the harder I work, the luckier I get, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that, you know, bitter wasn't what I was trying to, to get to, but I guess just by, you know, attrition, that, that, that's what the question sort of ends up being, is are you bitter? And, and I just don't see it, and... Um... I'm just, you know, I'm glad that you're in Warrant because the band was so uh, viable and, and, and the songs are so good. It would just have been a shame if there hadn't been somebody of your talent to step in there and, and keep the band going. Because they tried with a couple of other singers and it didn't work for whatever reason. And with you, it just works. It just works. And um, 
boy, they 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 really they 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 got a great guy when when they hired well, you. That's that's high praise. I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and lou- louder, louder, harder, faster is by the way uh, one of the best albums that they have made. Is, is certainly in the post Janie era. That that is uh, by far um, true. Well, I'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, listen, uh, there you go. Uh, and then we'll, I'll, I'll finish with this uh, on the Aussie gig because uh, we, we we just we, we sort of glossed over it in some parts. You were singing along the whole tonight with him, is that which was um, what you were saying, and they were sort of just punch you in and punch you out as needed in terms of, of the well, sound. It started as he needs somebody to do background vocals. Right. All the vocals he tracks on the records, he wants somebody who he's got a good vocal blend with, and that's I've done a ton of studio work and session work, so singing along with another lead singer. You know, I get called in to either fix songs or go in and do backgrounds because I could do that. And Keith Olsen had hired me back in the day to do a whole bunch of records for people. Um, so I'd slip in, record a whole bunch, get a check, and fly home. You know, So for me, it was just the live version of that. All those uh, gotcha. you know, Aussie songs, not too much on the Black Sabbath, but a lot of the Aussie songs have background vocals. And then as, you know, Mick Jagger's got a guy. He's he's got doesn't he have Bernard and and Lisa Lisa Fisher doing like those background vocals live for the Stones? Uh, yeah. Bernard Fowler is it? Yeah, I believe it is. So it's not unheard of to have somebody come in there and uh, because the live versions are so produced and and the audience has those as their memory, right? To have big multi-track lead vocals come in for choruses or whatever. Sometimes I would double choruses as well, and uh, I think I did that one night kind of on my own and Oz comes up and he's Oz and, and, uh, and Greg Price, the sound guy. And they both, they both said, Oh, that was cool. When you, you know, like doubled the course of whatever, you know, uh, where I didn't really, where I wasn't required to sing a, a harmony. And they said, Oz would just come up and he's like, Oh, that was cool. You're doing that from now on forever. Now, every night, you know, so it was kind of like my workload got heavier as I was on that tour, I guess, but it was fun. Was there? And it adds to the show and makes everybody happy. And isn't that why everybody's there? I mean, it's still Ozzy's voice out there. Yeah, and and that's what's important about these shows is, you know, at the end of the day, fans are paying a lot of money to see a good show, and 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 I don't know how you want to qualify it as smoke and mirrors or trickery or whatever. But at the end of the day, they want to hear a good show, and well, I think fans it's have trickery to... when. Right. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, but but. You know, fans will read about this or they'll hear about this, and they've said, and and they're like, "Oh my God!" And I, but you know what? Every single band has some kind of thing going on off stage that enhances the show, and you can't fault any band for trying to enhance the fan experience. And yeah, I know me, for me, the off, for me the off you know the off stage enhancement is a little tequila beforehand, um, <laughs> and go. I have and I have Stephen Sweet, Stephen. Stephen sings backgrounds. Everybody does their parts. Joey, I mean, Joey, Eric, and, and Jerry all sing as well. Um, you know, it's all, there's a lot of that gang vocal stuff. I mean, personally, do we use any backing tracks? No. But I have five guys. And I figure, you know, fuck it, Mitch, let's just go out there and, you know, rock out. Right. I, yeah, I, I, there's a certain amount. I mean, yes, there are a lot of bands using a lot of tracking. But then again, you kind of paint yourself into a corner in the studio when you multi-track all that stuff, and it's huger than huge. Then you get out there and play it live, and there's much less impact, and you think, oh, well, what can we do? And then somebody magically says, well, we have the master tracks, or we have this, we can play behind you. And then, then you got the drummer playing to a click, and then you've got, you know, and that was the thing that Oz didn't want to do. And, 
you know, at that time, it was just smart. I mean, that there's no trickery involved at all. I mean, yeah, they hid me behind. You know the main reason? And they, it's funny, Oz and Sharon came to me and kind of said, initially, Ozzy has only ever had four people on stage, really. If you think about it, there you go. That's true. So myself and the keyboard player were off stage. Right. I didn't feel like we were fooling anybody. I didn't need to be up there. It's not my show. It's the Ozzy Osbourne band. You know, I mean, what the hell? When I got there, Geezer was playing bass. I mean, I, you know, I was in a band with half a Black Sabbath once. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, that's a, that's not a bad bad thing to be. Was there ever a point where Ozzy <laughs> was 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 fighting a cold or pneumonia or something, and you had to take over a greater portion of of the workload? Um, okay, now you're really asking me to be honest with you, and yes. I know you probably even know the answer to this, because we may have talked about it once. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, oh, God, allegedly, Your Honor. Uh, he got really, really sick in Prague. We were in Czech Republic doing two shows in a row at some big, right. like, you know, sport hall in in uh, in Prague. And he was fighting bronchitis, and I think his voice was really, really bad, and he, you know, and his assistant, Tony, came in and was like, Ozzy wants to see you. He was like, oh, and I walk in. I'm like, oh, shit. So I go, how are you, boss? He's like, oh, I'm fucked. You know, like typical, like you expect him to say. And he had asked me to come in and was like, sing a little more that night or sing more or whatever. And I did, but his voice really kind of didn't do badly at all that night. You know, and if, and if the sound man mixes a little more of me in, it's kind of what I'm there for. You know, if you help your brothers out, like if you're in, you know, being in a band is like going to war. You don't let a brother fall. You get there and you pick him up. You don't sit there and watch him fall and laugh at him or sacrifice anything. I mean, for me, the show is everything, and then the show must go on, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think I sang one of those prog shows. I was doing more effort to sing a lot more of his parts, and then I would split off and do the harmonies. And if that gave him a little bit of relief, there you go. Team effort. There you go. You know, and and that I think that's where it started. And I and I kind of I liked doing it so much. I think I might have just been like the oversinger guy, like so happy to have that gig that I just sang pretty much a lot of the stuff. So right, you know, yeah. And I'm and lots I'm, of ba- lots of bands doing using straight up, you know, eighty and ninety tracks of Pro Tools, and I'm not, you know, I'm not pissing in their Slurpee because they do that. And by the way, the the Osmosis tour or the retirement sucks tour, whatever you want to call it, um, I just thought it was. I th- <laughs> he used to call it the Sobriety Sucks tour. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it does. Yeah, no, but it, it was uh, it, it was a great tour. It was a, I, I really enjoyed that album, and and I know a lot of people seem to put down Osmosis, and I don't know why, but I, I think it was a great album, and of course. Uh, Live, you had uh, Alan Skol- Alex, I should say, Skolnick on it at some point. You had Dean Castronovo. You had Joe Holmes. You, you know, the, the lineups came in and out, but Mike Inez was there. Geezer was right. Um, yeah, Mikey, uh, Geezer wanted to go off and do a, a Terry Butler. God love him. Yeah. He's one of my favorite people, honestly. Did that whole Europe leg together, and he really wanted to go and do a solo thing. Uh, it was called GZR at the time. So he wanted to split from the Oz camp. We, uh, we stole back Mikey from Allison Chains for a bit. And I know Mikey really well, so we got along great. And then Mikey had to leave and go back to, to Allison. We did, uh, we did the changeover again to, to uh, my workout and coffee in the morning, buddy, uh, Rob Trujillo. And uh, we got Rob. And at the same time, Randy, honestly, 
Castillo was let go and uh, Mike Borden stepped in, who's amazing. Yeah. You know, and Randy and I. See, the moments I have with Mike, Inez, and Randy on that tour are the best. And, and actually, the whole time I was in the band, Joel Holmes was the, was the guitar player. Although, so, uh, so you did you did all you did the '96 run, then you didn't do any of the '95 run. I did the end of the '95 run. Uh, they did theaters in the states and Canada, I think. Am I correct? And I joined up right after when they went to UK and Europe. All right, let me. I'm I'm going to look at this here. So, so uh, basically between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Okay, so they they fit. December, so they 95. started Mesa Tacoma in nine, November of '95, then they, over to Ipswich and Portsmouth and Wolverhampton, and okay, I'm, I got I right. Got, I checked all these dates here. Oh, so were you there when Dean Castronova was in the band, or had he been let no, go? No, it was it was right when Randy got back in. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Yes, Randy was right back in, and I was fresh in, and uh, and it was Geezer, John Sinclair, and Joe Holmes. And you had Robert Trujillo before he was traded to Metallica for um... <laughs> before he traded up. <laughs> right, but it, it was a it was a trade. Uh, to a to a two basemen and a and a you know third round draft pick later on. Exactly, should be named later. <laughs> totally, yeah. Trujillo is awesome. Like I said, he and I, he he'd call me almost every morning. He's like, "Nice, come on, coffee. Let's go find a gym somewhere." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm down." Yeah, he's he's great. And of course, his uh, his 12 year old son now is playing with Corn on on their I guess South American tour or whatever. Yeah. Like what's what's funny is I didn't know that, and I just saw Corn. In Arizona, at the Arizona Bike Week motorcycle thing, um, they were playing outdoors, and I ran in to go see them because they were an Aussie opener, too. So I remember them, and they were a baby band as our opening act on that Aussie tour in, in the States. Uh, it's so many great opening acts. I hadn't seen them in a few years, and I walk up, and I see Fieldy. I'm, he's, you know, I guess they're doing, oh, it might have been Ray's drum solo. And I see Fieldy off the side of the stage, right? And I go, I walk up to him, and I've got my hair under a hat. You know, and I, you know I'm, I'm, we're all older, look different. So I walk up and I'm like, yo, dude, remember that guy? Just like in his ear, like I'm being the annoying fan in his ear while he's just waiting to walk back on stage. Remember that guy? He used to sing like backgrounds of Ozzy and he, everybody was, he was in a tent and like nobody knew who he was. And he whips around and I was like, yeah. And he sees me, he goes, oh, fuck, really? So I get to hang out with those guys the other night. That's great. Yeah, no, great yeah. band. Um, yeah, we, I could, I could do this for another hour, but uh, I know. So could I, sorry. Well, no, 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 it's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at warrant louder, <laughs> harder, faster coming out. Uh, uh May, May 12th. We're really yeah. excited. Like yeah. I said, I'm honestly, I, I, thank you very much. Thanks to, you know, everybody in the band who gave me a lot of leeway to kind of, you know, make this record my own, make these songs, you know, that we, we kind of wrote on, like I said, mostly together, me and Dixon and I, everybody throws their hat in, you know? Joey's got ideas, Steven's got ideas, uh, Eric's got ideas, and it's it's cool to have something out. It gives me, I, I think it offers me a little more legitimacy with fans. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I, once again, am kind of fiercely proud of the vocal performances on this record. So, uh, you know, opinions vary. We'll see what happens. Yeah, no, no I, I think it's a, it's a great piece of work. And now, uh, more importantly, it's uh, which one of us is going to race and text Mitch Joel first to tell him that we did an interview? Well, <laughs> it'll it, it's the race to the texting right now. Uh, yeah, you know what? Honestly, I am going to run and do some business, so I will give yeah. you first crack at, at the other Mitch. <laughs> at the other Mitch. Uh, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. And hopefully, we will see you in uh, either Montreal or somewhere in Canada, you know, Ontario or something. Um, Warren shows are not to be missed.
And uh, never have I really it. appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Yeah, man. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Big thank you to Robert for his time. And, of course, a quick reminder, the new Warrant album is called Louder, Harder, Faster. Some of the best music they've made in the last 25 years. So uh, there you go. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaVon. Mitch LaVon. This is Norman Lear with my great sidekick, Paul Hip. Good to be here with you, Norman. On All of the Above. That's the name of my podcast, All of the Above. And uh, it's called All of the Above because we're going to talk about All of the Above. There isn't anything sacrosanct. There's nothing too above us or uh, below or us. Or below us. Well, certainly nothing too below us. But we have had guests you cannot believe. Yeah. Guests. Julie Dewey Dreyfus, amazing. And, and America Ferrara. Jared Carmichael. Yes. Oh, Amy Poehler. How did we overlook? We didn't overlook Amy Poehler. I was saving her for last. And Charles Barkley, I was saving him for first, actually, because I didn't declare up first. I get to hang out with this guy. And this is your chance to hang out with Norman Lear a little bit here and some of these great guests. God, I wish I was you hanging out with Norman Lear. Yeah. <laughs> Son of a gun. See? That must be exciting. It's the yeah. best. He's, I'm telling you. Don't miss All of the Above with Norman Lear. Download new episodes every week on the Podcast One app or subscribe at podcastone.com. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back to Rock Talk. And a big thank you to Robert Mason of Warrant. Their new album is... Harder, Louder, Faster comes out later this month. Do yourself a favor and pick that up. And while you are picking stuff up, you might want to pick up the new album by our second guest. Uh, It is called Hands Up, and the band is Honeymoon Suite uh, out of Canada. You might remember them, of course, for their contribution to the Lethal Weapon soundtrack with, of course, the title track Lethal Weapon. Uh, Or uh, Feel It Again. Yep, that uh, that was a great one. And, of course, the one that everybody knows, the ubiquitous uh, hit single, New Girl Now. And I'm sure as I say those words, you start hearing that, right? You you can obviously hear that song as soon as I say it. Now, uh, Derry, I have often considered him to be the Eddie Van Halen of Canada. His guitar playing is absolutely phenomenal. A couple of years ago, back in 2013, they did a uh, cover of a Kiss song called Reason to Live for a um, Kiss tribute I had put together called A World with Heroes. And I am telling you, it is absolutely fantastic. And here's a little something that folks may not know. Uh, you've got Johnny, the singer of Honeymoon Suite, Derry, the guitar player uh, from the band on the Reason to Live. But the on the other hand... You have got Michael and Bill Leverty from Firehouse. So it is this fusion of Firehouse meets Honeymoon Suite doing this uh, Reason to Live cover. You can find that on iTunes if you look for it. But uh, anyway, let's get into this interview. Uh, Derry and Honeymoon Suite have not stopped touring. They have not stopped making records. If you are in Canada, you know that. If you are anywhere else in the world, you may not know that. But you should know that their Clifton Hill album of 2008, which I had a hand in sequencing, is absolutely fantastic. Highly recommended, especially in the melodic rock genre, if you like that. And their new one, Hands Up, really good. It's just great. Great fun. I mean, that's the kind of album that you buy and you roll down the windows and you throw over the top. You know, you pop open the top if you have that, or if not, you you, you know... Punch a hole in the ceiling and roof and make your own instant um, sunroof. But it's great. 
Uh, you can get it at uh, Amazon. I know they had a Pledge Music campaign for it. I'm sure if you look on iTunes and all those other places, it's probably there too. It really mu very much uh, worth picking up. Anyway, enough with the rambling. Let us get to our second guest uh, from Honeymoon Suite, the one, the only, guitarist Derry Grian. We are speaking with guitarist Derry Grian of the band Honeymoon Suite, a great, great Canadian band that I've been a fan of for so, so many years. Uh, Derry, always a pleasure to talk to you. We're, we're here to talk about your new album, by the way. Likewise, man. Good to be talking to you again, Mitch. Yeah, you know, I've, I've in, years ago, back in the early 80s, I discovered, of course, uh, Honeymoon Suite through New Girl Now, and then The Big Prize, that whole 1985, which was my high school graduation year, that was the tape in the car. That that was it. There was nothing else. And uh, I still have, you know, all along you knew you, you, that song. You, you just, it's just, it's just, it's, it's the song for me. So, you know, great memories. Thank you. Great memories. But let's, Thank let's, you. let's, before we get into the past and, and we start talking about New Girl Now and Feel It Again and Lethal Weapon and all the stuff that you're known for, um, let's talk about this new, hand, uh, new album, Hands Up. You did the Pledge Music thing. Uh, talk to me a little bit about going the Pledge Music route, and how was that to get an album put together? It was a, a real learning experience, but it was at, at the end of it, it was quite successful. And at the beginning of it, um, I was quite skeptical. But a friend of mine, a guy that we did this Monsters of Rock cruise a few years back, and I met one of the managers on that boat, and we kept in touch, and he he's done this with his other bands. And he suggested you really should look into this if you're thinking an album. So we just kept communicating. One thing led to another, and we, we launched it. I brought it to the guys. We'd been writing anyways, and it was just a long process, but, you know, successful one. And I'm glad we did it. And it shows, at the end of the day, how much support that the band has. It's really encouraging because this is people, you know, directly giving you money or investing their money in your album, your you know, your fans are, it's a direct connection, and I like that. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's its sort of in the hope that you deliver, because as you're raising the money, in a sense, there is a chance that you don't get to the goal and that nothing happens. And so it really is this, we believe in you, and we're going to invest our, our, our fandom and our money in what you're about to deliver. Does it change how you approach making the album at all, um, wondering whether it's going to get, to the hundred percent or not? Does it change anything in in the process of putting an album together? No, because you're you've made a commitment, and you have people investing their money, and they they made a commitment to you. So it's like if we're when we were signed to a label, I like deadlines. The label says we need a record delivered in three months, and I'll give you a record in three months. So I take those commitments seriously, and I like to have deadlines because it gets people off their butts, and and you can set a schedule. Because musicians without a schedule. You know, that's not a good thing. So um, you, you get things done. And I got things done. And I learned a lot in the process. So it was good. Yeah. And the, uh, the other thing that I noticed, and by speaking to a couple of the other guys, is, you know, you tour Canada quite a bit. In fact, almost exclusively touring Canada. When you do the Pledge Music thing and you see fans ordering it from Germany and from England, uh, that's got to be a great feeling. It is. And that's the, this new age that we're living in, as opposed to like when you're talking about 1985 earlier, which was a great time, but there was no internet then. And it's not like it is now. The whole industry's changed where we can reach people around the world instantly and get, you know, get fans pledging from, from, you know, everywhere, Japan, Australia, Germany, 
So you're kind of, uh, connect, you know, you feel that connectivity, and it's it's inspiring. It really is. So um, talk to me in terms of musically, because when you do have the record company back in the day, and you do have the A&R guy or AOR guy saying, hey, we need a song that's for radio, and we need a song that's for this, and we need a song for MTV and much music, here you sort of have total freedom. Does it change the sound of the band? Does it change the kind of songs you want to make? Or are you comfortable saying, no, we are Honeymoon Suite, this is what a Honeymoon Suite song should sound like, and so you sort of stick to that. How do you approach it musically? Well, you, you, have, to, you have to remember what you are and what your brand is, and I don't want to, I hate the word brand, but your sound, and the reason why people love you and they love the songs and the, the you know Johnny's voice, there's a sound there, and you got to stay true, true to that. You try and change with the times. It's, it's going to sound like you did. So, we, we did a lot of writing on this album with uh, Sean Kelly, who I'm sure you know. Um, yep, I know Sean Canadian very well. Yeah. Guitarist and great songwriter. So he, it was the first time that Johnny and I did some three-way writing. So the ideas were flowing, and it was really good. Good like that. We, uh, you know, we pushed each other. And I wanted to make the songs truly Honeymoon Sweet, just melodic rock. And like our previous records, I wanted all the songs to be different from each other in, in some way. So you get that variety that you've always got. And I think we achieved it. Yeah, I, re I really do. And uh, for those that may not be familiar with Sean Kelly, he is, of course, Nelly Furtado's guitarist, and he also does stuff with, on occasion, Helix and Lee Aaron, just an incredibly talented guy. Um, last album, Clifton Hill, came out in 2008. Hands Up just came out now. Sort of what took that time, though, that, that eight, nine-year gap, to get the next album put together? There just wasn't the opportunity or the the desire right to do it at, at that point we're just going at we were playing and it was like if you're going to do an album if i'm going to start something i'm type person if i start something i got to finish it so it i don't know after a while the circumstances just came together we started working with sean kelly i sean and i got back in touch started doing other things and then it kind of morphed into why don't we start writing some songs with with johnny and you and I, I've been doing a lot of writing, and it just kind of took on its its own life. And then the, the pledge thing came into play, where we had the opportunity to raise the money to record a proper album. One thing just led to another, and you know, sometimes when in life, sometimes things are just started falling in place, and you don't question it; you just roll with it. Let's go back to some of the songs that, especially fans in the states, are going to be familiar with. Uh, New girl now, great success in Canada. Top uh, top twenty in the states, top sixty. Um, what do you remember about recording that song and putting it together? And just looking back on your career, what has it meant to you? It's it's meant a lot. I mean that that song is the one that that started everything for us basically. And you remember that the whole story of New Girl Now was just a demo submitted to the Q107 Homegrown contest, nineteen I don't know eighty two eighty three. We were just a bar band then. And we recorded a rough demo in Tom Tremu's basement of that and face-to-face -face and funny business on a little eight-track. We sent it in, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, it won the contest, got the labels out. And then we went to phase one in Toronto to, once we got our budget to do it for real. And the whole, the, the bed tracks were all done in two weeks. Done really quickly, but it, it came out sounding great. What it... What was it like in nutshell? It was exciting. It was a dream, you know, our dream, a dream was coming true. You know, we got signed, we're, we're recording and we might have a hit. And, and of course, um, 
it, it did become very popular. Uh, talk to me about the impact it had in the States, because the band had some heat going on in the States, and now uh, you're more sort of a Canadian-based band. Um, talk to me about how it went in the States and why now the States is more of a difficult market for you. You have to remember at the time the new girl came out, it was 83, 84. It was the dawn of, of the video and, and MTV had started much music. So we actually lucked out coming in at that time. We got the video done and we were lucky enough to get on Warner brothers in the States. So we had, we had some clout there and some power and some distribution. So our videos on MTV back when MTV played videos and they didn't have very many. So if you got in a rotation, everybody knew your name and your video. So instant, you know, huge promotion. And we, that got us on all those tours with ZZ Top and Heart and 38 Special. It's wonderful. Airplay. It's amazing. Great time. Yeah, it really and, was. Uh, see, the, the, um, the second part of your question, we'd done so much work in the States in the, in the, uh, in the mid to late 80s and then early 90s. And then we didn't because the records weren't happening there. And now we've been away for quite a while. We do sporadic dates. You have to have somewhat of a profile down there. And the positive thing is, is so many bands of our era that are out touring now of our genre. We just need to get on the right tour. We're trying to bring our profile up and it's, it's tough because you have to have a, you know, the right promoter, but it's, I feel that's coming because it's a great market. I love Canada, but I really want to play more down South. Yeah, I, and I and yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to see it for you. Actually, I think I think you're, you know, when you're looking at the melodic rock bands that are out there that that are still touring Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, and all those bands, to me, the Honeymoon Suite has always been in that league, in that category. I, I just think that musically and and song crafting wise, you're as good as anything that those bands have done, and uh, I certainly wish for you. Um, now, speaking of great albums, let, let me get over to the big prize. This is the album, like I just said before, 1985. It, that was it. Um, talk to me about working on that album and what you were trying to do with it and some of the guests you had on it, including uh, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull and, of course, Mickey Curry, who added some extra percussions, and he's, of course, done everything with uh, Brian Adams yeah. and Hollow Notes and, and all these other places. Um, Talk to me about that album. Feel it again, of course, being the the, the great big hit, the big big hit. Um, uh huh. Yeah, just just. Oh man, well, just talk to me about putting that album together because it it is, uh, to me, one of the best albums. I mean, if somebody ever said to me, Mitch, give me your top ten albums of 1980s, this one is coming in there. Oh, thank you. Well, like I was saying, I touched on a little bit earlier. Some points in life when. A uh, series of things that just coming together, just I don't know why, you just go with it. And that was such an amazing time around the time of the big prize. Don't forget the first album had come out and it was bang, you know, platinum, double platinum Canada, sold hundreds of thousands in the States. So we had a big first record, which was amazing. But you ask any band, man, that second album better be good. You know, it's got to be twice as good. And we knew that we had that pressure. So then we meet Bruce Fairburn, okay? He comes into the picture, and he's got this, you know, records in Vancouver with Bob Rock Engineering. So look at these things coming together. And I, you know, Bruce was really, really hard on us for writing, and, and, and that's why his records are so successful. He made sure the songs were good before we went in. So he pushed us, and we went in an amazing studio with amazing people. And 
mixed it in England at the at the farmyard, the same way we did with the first record. Um, Nikki Curry was brought in to play a little bit uh, on some tracks. And you know what? That's just a lot of great things coming together at the right time. We, we were kind of at the top of our game, firing on all cylinders, if you will. The tunes were there, and, and management was, was good, good label. So everything was a good vibe, and I think the album reflects that. It really does. And how does how does Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull end up on a Honeymoon Suite album? Oh, man. Um, we had finished the record, and All Along You Knew was, was a great song with a great shuffle kind of groove. But at the end of the record, something, you know, we... We were listening to it, and I don't know. Bruce said it like there's, you know, still something, you know, missing. There's still something hooky or musically that's missing. Somebody suggested Ian Anderson because we had our first American tour with the first album. We went on the road with Jethro Tull, believe it or not, for like two, three months. We were the opening act for Jethro Tull. You know, go figure. But it turned out to be an amazing tour, and we made friends with those guys. And because we're mixing the big prize in England. We went over. We simply somebody contacted Ian Anderson, and he and we sent him the track. He said, "I'd I'd love to do it." He said, "Nobody's ever asked me to play on a on an album before. I couldn't believe that." But that's all it was. And we're you know he lived maybe an hour away from the studio where we were mixing. He just came over one day and did the session. That's such a cool story. Um, you know that that I just love hearing that kind of thing. Um, let me go down to the next one here. Racing after midnight. Now you're now you're working with Ted Templeman, who's of course done the Doobie Brothers, Van Halen. What was it like working with Ted? And of course, since he's worked with Eddie Van Halen, and I've always said that you're our Canadian version of Eddie Van Halen. What did he say to you in terms of musically and in, in, in giving you some guidance in terms of how to use your the instrument and, and instrumentation and playing guitar playing? What was it like working with Ted? Ted is he had that California thing, you know, it's like, Hey man, you know, like, you know, it feels good. Let's just, you know, let it happen. You know, it's just got to feel, you know, he had a funny way of getting things out of you. He was a little bit different than Bruce, but it was all about the, the groove and the feel to him and what, what felt right. And it doesn't technically have to be perfect, but it's, it's, it's the way it felt. And he's just a very easygoing guy. And he gave me a lot of, uh, you know, because I knew he'd worked with Van Halen a lot and, and Montrose and other guitar players. Um, it's just kind of cool to be, you know, working with him. He would give me some direction here and there and tell me, you know, I don't know Eddie, one time Eddie was in the studio with this, you know, friggin' guitar and he did this and he did that. So you got a few stories here and there. It was cool. I can imagine. Now, we've never actually spoken about uh, Eddie Van Halen, but... Were you a big Van Halen fan? Were you influenced by Eddie? I mean, is he sort of your guitar god, or who is sort of your influence on the on the instrument? Well, I was a fan the first time I, you know, the first right. album, the summer that it came out. As soon as you heard, you know, Eruption, that was it. Like because it was so different than anything else, it's so heavy and cool. Yeah, I really think everybody was a Van Halen fan at first. Of course, I mean, he's he's great. He, He's like Jimmy Page. He changed the way people people play, and um, I just like his his approach to the guitar. It makes me smile, makes me laugh. It's 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 just so cool and funky and heavy at the same time. 
on the slot to be learned. Um, but he's not like my hero um, because nobody can be Eddie Van Halen, but Eddie Van Halen. Lots of guys try, but don't. it's in the hands, man. Only he plays like that. So I try and play like me, but I draw influences from everybody, all these great guitar players, you know, Steve Stevens, Joe Satriani. Uh, I mean, I could go on all day, but they all offer something that I go, that is really cool, and I can maybe pull a bit of that into my playing. That, that, that's, that's, were, were you an Ace Frehley fan, by the way? Yeah, I think Ace, I saw Kiss a couple of times back in the day when Kiss was Kiss, you know? Um, and he was just, you know, Ace is just meat and potatoes, man. He's just Les Paul through the Marshall, straight, you know, pentatonic scale, just straight ahead rock, but a great guitar player. Yeah, cause I, and, one, and of course, one of the reasons I ask is back in 2013, you and Johnny uh, did the Reason to Live uh, Kiss cover for an album that I was putting together, the uh, A World with Heroes for the Palliative Care Home. And I have to say, there are a few songs on that album where I prefer the cover versions to the original, and Honeymoon Suites version of Reason to Live is by far better than the original version. And I, I've always wanted to tell you that because it just sounds right. You really got, you, you guys really just nailed it. What, what was it like putting that song together, by the way? Well, first of all, thanks for uh, thinking of us and, you know, throwing, throwing it our way. I think Johnny did a, a great job. Oh, yes, he did. Nice of you to, <laughs> yes, he did. That's nice. Of, yeah, well, that's nice of you to say. Those things are always kind of fun because they're a bit of a challenge when somebody comes in and says, can you cut this? And it was kind of like that when Ted brought Lethal Weapon into the room. But that one there, it was fun because I was talking to the guitar player in uh, Firehouse for some reason about that. He was kind of helping me through that process, or maybe he did some tracks or something. But we're, it was one of those first times that we were, I started recording and started sending tracks around because we didn't all do it at the same place at the same time. And I thought it, uh, oh, I know what it was. We, you know, Somebody was sending me tracks, and I was putting my tracks on top. So it was really fun to kind of build it and then get Johnny's vocal on. And I thought, in the end, uh, we did it justice, because I didn't want to just take it you know, as a demo and just record it and throw it back at you, you know, and put, do a half-assed effort. So, and, yeah, I and, thought and, it was good. And, and what I find amazing about the whole thing is Johnny kept stressing over the vocal. Oh, I can't, I can't sound like Paul Stanley. I can't sound like 1980s Paul Stanley. Oh, how dare you? And he, and he nailed it. So I, I just, it, it's just amazing to see sort of that tortured artist kind of thing going on. And yet it just sounds glorious. And it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, you did. Well, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I was going to move on to lethal weapon, but what were you just finish your thought on, on Johnny and the tortured. Oh, oh. Oh, and when John, well, you've met Johnny. You know Johnny quite well. He yeah. takes he takes his craft very seriously, especially his vocal. And he's going to sing someone else's song. He really does his homework. Yeah. Does, does so, he does he do the same thing? Like when you're recording hands up, does does Johnny sort of? I don't, I don't want to, for the lack of a better word, no disrespect, but does he stress over his vocals even on your albums and go, "Oh my God, I can do better"? Is that just sort of his personality? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. He st stresses the is the operative word. But it just means that he takes it seriously, you know, and he really just wants to get things right. Yeah, and he does. So his personality. Uh, so let's 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 head over to Lethal Weapon. I mean, a major major motion picture in the '80s. Uh, Mel Gibson, Danny Glover. You cannot get bigger. Uh, talk to me about the song, but also talk to me about it. how did that song get to you? How does you know this major? Uh, and what is it? Warner Brothers. 
discover a Canadian band out of Toronto and have them do the soundtrack song for their prime summer vehicle? Ted Templeman, Warner Brothers. Gotcha. Simple as that. Just, just timing. We were recording the Racing After Midnight. A lot, most of that was done in L.A. And um, Ted was producing. But Ted was also the A&R guy at Warner Brothers down there. That was his day job. So he's running back and forth between the studio and his office. So Warner Brothers Pictures, of course, is right beside them. They're all affiliated. And Ted gets that stuff across his desk. Michael came and wrote the song and the demo. Uh, I guess the film company, whoever the producer was looking for, a band to cut uh, this demo of Lethal Weapon, which was just a piano vocal demo. And Ted, in his infinite wisdom, you know, he's like, hey, you know, I'm in the studio with this Canadian band right now. You know, got a great singer. Why don't I see what they can they can do with it? And we, you know, we were getting so many opportunities um, coming our way for things like when I did the Pepsi commercial. Just when you're when you're on a roll like that, you know, you you get these crazy opportunities coming with you, and it's it's kind of like the Jim Carrey movie. You know, you can't say no. Just say yes there. <laughs> Yes, to everything, and, and just roll with it. That's great. So, so the song then it was it was brought to you in a sort of semi finished form, and then you guys honeymoon sweeted it, for the lack of a better word. But the- um, yeah, well, I'll tell you, Johnny hated it at first. Right. He's like, we, you know, he, so it was same. It was a schmaltzy, and like if you'd heard the demo, yeah, it was definitely not honeymoon sweet. But Ted kind of encouraged him to at least give it a shot. So we did, and the, the key word is just try it. Well, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that both you and Johnny at this point are glad you did because it it did raise your profile. Now, the the other thing that I find amazing about that song because it is a great song is the last few times I've seen you live, you haven't played it. Is there a reason to leave it out? And have you started playing it again? Johnny will put it in the set on occasion okay. if he's feeling it, but it's really his call, and okay. we have a lot of songs and we're, you know, it's not a bad problem, but we're lucky to, to have had so many hit songs or songs that people know that we can pack a whole set without and not do lethal weapon and people won't feel shortchanged. But a lot of people do ask for it. And it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy song for Johnny to sing. And if he's going to sing it, he wants to do it justice. So if his throat's feeling good and he's feeling good, we, you know, we love playing it and we will from time to time. Yeah, I'll certainly hope uh, that I'll get to see it at some point this year. Now, um, from going forward from, let's say, the month of May onwards, what are the band's uh, touring schedule? Uh, what does sort of the rest of 2017 look like for you? The dates, it's starting to fill up now. We're just in April now, and we're, this spring and summer schedule is filling in nicely. The dates are on our Facebook page and on our website, and it's a lot of what we've been doing for, for the last while, it's fairs and festivals and more festivals and crazy stuff and flying all over the place and having a, having a blast in the summer and just, you know, just going out there playing. It's great. And yeah. we might have, um, uh, there's a tour, there's a tour in the fall. I don't think I can announce it now, but, um, we're hoping that it comes together. So uh, we'll make, we'll make that announcement. That that's going to be a good thing that's going to happen next, uh, next October. We're, yeah. we're hoping it, it comes together. I think it's, it's going to, and we'll announce that too. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Now, for those who don't know what the Facebook page is, it's a uh, facebook.com forward slash H M S live. 
so uh, facebook.com HMS live so people check that out and then we'll finish on this you've done a few of the cruises uh, get out on the boat and stuff uh, talk to me a little about that cruise experience how, how is that for the from the I mean from the fans perspective you've got all your favorite bands on a cruise and you're in the sunshine and you're you're, you're drinking and it's, it's just a party how is it from the band's perspective to be on those cruises? It was great. I was always kind of wanting to do one. And, um, I mean, I loved it. It was, um, it's not the crazy four-day party you think it is. Not for the bands because we're shuffled around and we have to do this and do that and play two or three times. So you're kept, you're keeping pretty busy. And, uh, it, anyways, at the end of the day, it was great for me. It's amazing because there's so many great guitar players on one boat, and they're just down in the lounge. The the accessibility you have to all these players to not only see them uh, up close at a jam, but to go up and talk to them afterwards. That was the coolest thing because they can't get away. They're on a boat. <laughs> but it was really cool. Yeah, it's got to be fun. And um, we'll, we'll finish with this. The, uh, the song on Hands Up, Market Square, the new album, features your daughter, Leigh Marlene. Um, what's it, what's it like, you know, you know, you start off back in the day with the first album and the big prize and now your kid has grown up and is on an album with you. How is that as a dad to have your daughter singing with you? Well, you know, what do you think? It's like, of course, I'm very, very proud of her. Um, but the, it's just cooler how that, you know, that song came together. Johnny actually wrote most of that song with um, thinking of, because my daughter Leah and I, around the town that we live, I would go out and play with her. She does the acoustic singer-songwriter thing, and I would be her guitar player. So we would go down to the Market Square and do these open-air concerts and stuff. And Johnny sort of wrote the song around that. So when it was finished, I asked Leah if, if um, Johnny had actually brought it up, so maybe Leah wants to do a little vocal on this, this song. So I asked her, and she did it at my studio at home, and it it came out great. So it's good for her and it's good for us. I'm, I'm thrilled. Yeah, I can just imagine. And uh, I guess you're encouraging her to, to go have her own career. Because I, I speak to a lot of rock stars who will say, oh, no, 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 this biz is terrible. Stay away. But uh... It is. Yeah, it is. You know what? I, I have a son, too, and he's not following a career in music. Um, but he's extremely smart, and he's got another path he's going on. And But Leah, I don't want to push her. I don't. You know, the advice I'd say a lot of parents, they push their kids into it because they just want that for them more for the parents than the kid. But Leah is doing it naturally. She loves to do it. So we're, we're help, I'm helping her along the way, but not pushing her because she actually has the desire. You know, we were in Nashville actually last week for the whole week and she had some meetings down there and um, we're kind of gradually moving ahead with, you know, a, a bit at a time with her and it's going really good. Yeah, that's great. Uh Dario, always a pleasure. Of course, the new Honeymoon Suite album is called Hands Up. It is available now. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's at the. Uh, where can we get it exactly? It's on the uh, the website. It's on. It was on Pledge, but I'm sure Amazon and stuff will have it as well. Yeah, the Pledge campaign is is over now, and the album. Just go to Amazon.ca or Amazon.com. Um, it's it, you can purchase it there. It's on iTunes, and um, I think um, it's even in retail outlets. There'll be in some retail outlets in Canada if there are any left, you know. Yeah, before they all close. But no, it's a, it's a great sounding album. I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of melodic rock, whether it's Honeymoon Suite or Night Ranger or or Journey or you know all those Def Leppard, Bon Jovi. 
you're you're right in that pile. You're it, it's it's just solid solid rock. Well done. Great vocals. Great musicianship. Uh, and uh, just always a pleasure to to chat with you and, and to see you live. Um, there you well, go. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Mitch. Uh, it's just uh, you just remind me. I was up in Chicago about a week ago. I went up to the Bon Jovi show there to uh, see them and and hook up with Phil X and have a little bit of a chat with him. I haven't seen him in a while. And again, you mentioned Bon Jovi. They're still they're just doing what they do, and their new stuff is just it's straight ahead melodic Bon Jovi, and they have their fans, and they still have a lot of them. So it's good. It really is good. And uh, and someday uh, I hope to get Phil X on the phone because I just think that his whole career path is very interesting from from getting the bon jovi gig to doing his own stuff to to doing stuff with triumph i think there's a great story in there and uh someday i'd love to i'd love to sit down one-on-one with him and and, and hear what he has to say but there you go yeah phil phil's got a great a great story and he deserves everything he gets he's worked hard for it so yeah you know uh, he's a great guy you should get him on yeah absolutely thank you Derry. thanks mitch great talking to you yeah and we'll see you soon Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. And there you have it, folks, my interview with a dairy from Honeymoon Suite. Big thank you, of course, go out to uh, Robert Mason of Warned. Please uh, check out both their new albums, Hands Up from Honeymoon Suite and Harder, Louder, Faster for Warned. Both great, great albums. And, uh, of course, while you're checking stuff out, head over to Twitter. That's right, at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N. It is so much fun. Tell your friends. I mean, really, just say, hey, friends. Follow this guy. You'll you'll love it. Uh, and, of course, Instagram, at Mitch underscore Lafon. And uh, all over the Internet, uh, there is a wonderful thing called uh, the Google. And you just put in the uh, Mitch Lafon thing, and it's just, it's wow. It's just it's like Christmas. Yeah, it, it's Christmas. That's what it is. It's just like Christmas. <sighs> That's enough, right? That's enough. All right, we'll stop. Uh, bye for now. <laughs> Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. Chris Jericho, pro wrestler, rock and roller, actor, philanthropist. He's the best. And now you can dress like the best at Chris Jericho's House of Scarves. Chris Jericho's House of Scarves has scarves of all shapes, sizes, and fabrics for all your scarfing needs. Like a light-up scarf for a night on the town or a light-up scarf for sailing on your yacht. And yes, even a light-up scarf for sex stuff. All of Chris Jericho's House of Scarves scarves are guaranteed to match your wardrobe as long as it's briefs and boots. Just visit one of our 37 locations, all located within five minutes of Tampa's Dying Mall. And don't forget to tell them Team Tiger Awesome sent you. Chris Jericho's House of Scarves are not affiliated with Chris Jericho. Paid for by the Committee for the Advancement of Scarves. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to 
clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.